Hello, and welcome to another episode of Adventures in .NET. I'm Sean Claybell, your host, and with me today on the panel is Caleb Wells from Typhon Group. Say hi, Caleb. Hey, y'all. Hey, and we've got a new panelist today, Wai Lu. Say hi, Wu. Hello. Hi. Since you're new on the panelist, uh, tell us a little about yourself. Why? Firstly, thanks for letting me come on as a, a guest host. This is actually the first time I've been on the podcast. So I'm excited. So I'm currently um, actually not a full-time developer. I'm, I'm actually currently a, a PM, but I've been a, a developer for, for a long time and I've always kind of been in the Microsoft space. I, I kind of still code in my spare time and I'm always trying to keep up to date with um, the latest tech. As a developer, I've always been kind of within the Microsoft stack, although recently I've been kind of moving more towards kind of front-end technologies like, um, like Angular and kind of looking at more like non-Microsoft um, um, ecosystems like, um, like Firebase and things like that. And I guess that's kind of led to some interesting differences between how Microsoft developers work and how non-Microsoft developers work, although that's kind of changed a lot recently because I think um, a lot of there's a lot of exciting things happening at, at Microsoft with their kind of shift towards open source and, and Azure and, and .NET Core. And, and my last couple of projects have, have tried to use Azure and, and, and .NET Core. That's my main interest and where it lies right now. So. Great, great. It sounds a lot yeah. like uh, Caleb and myself, uh, somewhat. Yeah. You know, we're .NET based, but we do Angular front ends and do a lot of different things, uh, Azure, so on and so forth. So, if people haven't picked up on your accent, I think you're from Australia. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So I'm from Australia. I'm actually from a, um, a small town in Australia called Canberra. It's actually the, the capital of Australia, but it's it's only got like four hundred thousand people. Most of the systems I've worked on have traditionally been. Like basically everyone in Canberra either has a government job or they have a job that works, uh, for, have an employer that works for the government. I have a government job, so. Okay. Mm-hmm. What part of Australia is that? Um, it's, it's about 300 kilometers away from Sydney. I assume you've heard of Sydney. Yeah. It's, it's really cold, actually. Um, it's, actually it's about 5.30 over here right now, so. <laughs> okay. So well, that, it is good high. to have you. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, it's great to have you. I think that's about, if you convert it to 180 miles, Something like oh. that. So, yeah. Yeah, what's what happening? So. <laughs> we, we, yeah, you, you know, as Americans with our miles and feet and inches, we, you know, um, sometimes it's hard to convert. I'm, computer, so. <laughs> I'm only a couple hundred miles from the Canadian border. So, you know, go up there and, you know, see signs that says 100 kilometers per hour speed limits. And I know that's about 60. So, 300 convert, you know, 180 miles. So, yeah. Good, good. So with us today is a, a great guest. It's Jason Bach. Hi, Jason. Hey, how you doing? Good. Good. One of the biggest pain points that I find as I talk to people about software is deployment. It's really interesting to have the conversations with people where it's, I don't want to deal with Docker. I don't want to deal with Kubernetes. I don't want to deal with setting up servers. I don't, you know, all of these different things. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has gotten a lot easier And in a lot of ways, DevOps has also kind of embraced a certain amount of culture around applications, the way we build them, the way we deploy them. I've really felt for a long time that developers need to have the conversations with DevOps or adopt some form of DevOps so that they can take control of what they're doing and really understand when things go to production, what's going on, so that they can help debug the issues and fix the issues and find the issues when they go wrong and help streamline things and make things better and slicker and easier so that they'll more generally go right. So we started a podcast called Adventures in DevOps. I pulled in one of the hosts from one of my favorite DevOps shows, Nell Shamrell Harrington from The Food Fight Show, and we got things rolling there. 
And so this is more or less a continuation of the Food Fight Show, where we're talking about the things that go into DevOps. So if you're struggling with any of these operational type things, then definitely check out Adventures in DevOps. And you can find it at adventuresindevopspodcast.com. So thanks for coming and, and talking to us today. You want to give us a, a brief introduction about uh, who you are and what you do? Sure. I am what's known as a practice lead for application development at .NET for a software development consulting company called Magenic. And I'm based out of the main offices in the Twin Cities of Minnesota. Um, we have offices around the, the country and also in Manila. And my software development life has pretty much been on the Microsoft stack. Took a little bit of a detour in the late 90s to Java, got out of that. Um, so, <laughs> good, good. Yeah, it, uh, mo- most of it's been actually on .NET and been doing some uh, writing and some speaking and, and that type of stuff as well. In fact, Caleb was telling me that he saw my talk at a conference in New Orleans earlier this year, yeah. which yep. was kind of cool. So Yeah, yeah, it was it was a really good talk. It was actually um, on one of the subjects we're going to dive in today, C-Sharp 8. I think you're, you're all over the country. You've got been doing several conferences the last few years, so really happy to have you. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I've flown into uh, the Twin Cities a number of times. My uh, wife is from Wisconsin, so just over the border there, about 90 miles. So, Where does she grow up? Let me ask. Eau Claire, Chippewa Falls. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I grew up about an hour's drive north of Milwaukee. Okay, very good. So I think our main topic today is going to be C-Sharp 8. And we've had an episode where we talked about some of this, but I think we're going to get into it a little bit more in depth today. So what do you think is the first thing somebody should know about uh, what C-Sharp 8 is going to bring for them? Well, there's a lot of features in C-Sharp 8 that we can cover. And it's been interesting to note that since C-Sharp went open source, that was with version 6, that the number of features that have been that have come with each version have been a fair amount. So it's been good to see almost a revitalization in the language. With C Sharp 8, the, the one thing that I think is pretty striking is it's no longer tied to .NET Framework. So for example, if, if you look at the features for C Sharp 8 and you're like, oh, I'd, I'd like to upgrade that and I'd love to write my, the, the apps that I currently have targeting .NET Framework to use these C Sharp 8 features, uh, you can't because some of them just don't work. So this is kind of this, where you're seeing this shift where everything's starting to slowly but surely move into the .NET Core world. And that's where, uh, to quote Will Smith, that's where all the new hotness is. Mm -hmm. And that's where things are going. So for example, one of the features in C Sharp 8 default interface uh, members, does it just doesn't work in .NET Framework and it won't because that required a change to the CLR. So I think that's what's interesting is that up until this point, the, the language was arguably irrelevant in terms of what runtime you were targeting. And now it matters. So you can only use C Sharp 8 with .NET Core 3. Now there are some features you can use full ahead, framework though, right? There are some, yeah. I've, I've, there's a, a picture that I have in, like when Kale was mentioning the talk that I do, there's a picture that I show where what features could you use and what, what features you can't. But it's definitely not all of them. And right. the, the ones that I think that are the, 
I don't say none of them are, some of them are cruel and some of them aren't, but I think the ones that people have probably heard of the most are the ones that are not available. So, so are we just saying that then like the .NET framework, like 4.8 um, or um, 4.X, um, they would just have like a C-sharp 7.1 type thing where it's kind of like a subset of features from 8 or? Well, it's a good question in that if you tried it, what would work? And, mm-hmm. and I, I, I don't know. The last version of C-sharp before 8 was 7.3. So um, it was interesting with 7 point or, or C-sharp 7 is they actually did point releases. They had never done that before. So there was a 7.1, 7.2, and a 7.3. And I don't know if they'll do that with 8 or not, but I have not personally tried taking the, the, like the, the demo code that I have for my C-sharp 8 talk and targeting 4.8 and seeing what breaks and what doesn't. But I would imagine that a fair, fair amount of it would. And even if you could, like there's some things with ranges and indices that you might be able to do some gyrations to get it to work. It feels like to me that you're just, you're fighting inevitability, mm. which is over time, this is just not going to get easier. It's going to get probably harder and harder to even get it to work. So it's like, if, if you want to use C-sharp 8, you really should just target .NET Core 3. And if you're, and of course, this slowly but surely, I think getting people to start to think about, well, do we migrate or not? And I was going to ask that not, question. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's not just a language issue. I think that's that's part of it. It's mm-hmm. also a performance issue. .NET Core is just extremely fast. It's a it's a very reliable runtime, and mm-hmm. like in the tech and power benchmarks, it does extremely well these days. Mm-hmm. So Microsoft's been very clear that's where they're focusing all their efforts um, right. for future enhancements. So, do you stay on framework, or do you move to .NET Core and there is no, well, obviously the right answer is move to .NET Core. For some people, in fact, for a fair amount of people, moving to moving off of .NET Framework can be a substantial effort. So it's not something to take lightly, but it's one of those things of, I think people have to really start explicitly thinking about, do we keep this app on Framework or do we mm-hmm. start looking at moving it off? Do we start having an effort to say all of our new work is going to be targeting .NET Core, you know? Right. So, so .NET shops, definitely, if they aren't already, they should be thinking about this and, and what their strategy is. I mean, in a, in a perfect world, I, yeah, the move to .NET Core would definitely be good. But I guess for me and my experience, I've worked in a lot of like big government apps and mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're very hard to move to, to .NET Core, I would say, just because there's just so many dependencies. You know, like I've worked on apps where, you know, you're still using the, the you know database first and the framework and things like that, and you have to convert that to code first, and and you know they're, they're tied to servers that are basically using IIS and things like that. So it, it would have to be a really big project. So it'd be interesting um, what happens in the next couple of years when Microsoft does start to remove support for for .NET 4.x. So what does .NET? Well, one quick thing though about that point is, well, at least right now Microsoft is being very explicit that their the support for 4.8 is going to be. Um, I think in, when they did .NET Conf, they jokingly said, but I think they were kind of serious about this, is forever. Because the, the, the .NET Framework runtime ships with Windows. And there are a lot of apps internally at Microsoft that rely upon frameworks. So they're in the same boat that a lot of us are in as well. They just can't take all that code and rewrite it or, or retarget it. So mm-hmm. I don't see support for 
done at Framework 4.8 in terms of security fixes and those types of things going away. New features, yeah, it's now for whatever, however you want to phrase it, it's frozen. And what you have there is that's what's going to be there. It's not going to move from that point on, but it's still going to be supported for quite a long time. My main project is a, uh, a 4.8 web forms project. And so it's going to be some time before I can move to core, but I did enable C sharp eight and mm-hmm. the noble reference types and the new using statements and I think some of the pattern matching worked fine. I haven't tried ranges or indices yet. So I'm getting some things that I was really looking forward to with C-sharp 8. And when I first heard about it, they were saying it was going to be core only. So I was kind of disappointed. But then I did find out that you could enable it and try out things. And you know, if it doesn't work, well, then don't use it. But some of the nice things, like say, multiple yeah. references and so, using and things like that do work. So since you brought that up, I just brought up my own presentation because I just want to look quick. And and NRTs, Nullable Reference Types, is on the yes, that will work. So it says that recursive patterns, switch expressions, targeted type new expressions, that actually got moved to a potentially future version of C-sharp 8. That was, and that's one of the cool things too about the way the language evolves is that they can have features in preview versions and then decide this isn't, quite done yet. And so they're not going to eliminate it. They just push it out of that version and then maybe they'll put it in in a future version. So, but yeah, the, the NRTs are saying that should work. Uh, indexes or indices and ranges, default interface members won't. Right. Ranges and indices are actually just types in a way. So you, that's, where, that's one of those that you might be able to somehow retrofit a solution in. But Again, over time, this is you know the the, the list is only going to grow. It's not going to get smaller. So, mm-hmm. right. Well, uh, Sean and I are on opposite ends of our development process. The company I'm working for, we started a brand new project right when uh, .NET Core went release candidate, and so we've been okay. on it from the start. Thankfully, I mean I'm very familiar with .NET Framework, but I agree with you. .NET Core's leaps and bounds of better in performance, you know, and and what you have to pull in, and what you have to reference. But from Y's standpoint, uh, it's going to be interesting, not necessarily migrating existing applications, because I understand from a government perspective, that's probably unlikely to happen. But Mm -hmm. uh, new implementation, new projects, I think at some point, they're going to have to make that switch. And I wonder if C-sharp 8 is one more reason or an impetus, right, to go with .NET Core. So that'll be interesting to, to see. Yep, I agree. I totally agree. So um, what's the first thing you want to cover about uh, C-sharp 8 then? What should we go into? Are you asking me or Caleb? Or Way? <laughs> oh, you, yeah, you, you Jason. Jason. Yeah. We're, we're, we're going to defer to okay. you. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of them there. Um, but, yeah. well, the two biggest ones that I think we could just talk about that are in the list are, are null reference types and default interface members. Um, I think we can tackle those two and, and talk about those. So nullable reference types, uh, just so everybody knows what we're talking about there, that's where you can annotate types in parameters and properties, you know, things like that, and say that they're nullable. So instead of just saying string, you say string question mark. And this is also a feature that you have to opt into. So this is, I think, the first 
compiler feature from C Sharp that you you have to go into your project file and basically say nullable enable. Otherwise, it's not going to work. So, and this is for a good reason because if you turn if it's turned on and you take a project and just dump it into C Sharp eight, you might run away screaming. (laughs) <laughs> because it's going to give you yeah. a, a lot. Well, if you, I turn on warnings as errors. So I would see a lot of errors. If you did it, you'd see a lot of warnings. But either way, there's going to be a lot of things that are flagged that you're going to look at it and go, what is this? Like, this is really, really painful. So it is a feature that you can opt into. And there are also ways that you can do it like per file. But the point of it is you have to opt in. What basically happens is when you opt in is it's saying, Every reference type like to a parameter is considered to be not null unless you mark it with the question mark. And so then it's saying that it could be null. So this is really trying to do a couple things. One, it is trying to reduce the number of null reference exceptions that developers get because those can be really insidious and painful and, and hard to debug and hard to fix and all those things. So that's one of the things it's trying to do. But I think it was from Mads. You know, Matt Torgensen, the, the guy for C-Sharp, um, I think he said this in one of his talks, and it really stuck with me, is it's really a C-Sharp developer trying to express intent. Do you intend that you could take a null or not? And so it's really trying to be explicit as to saying, do you support nulls on a constructor with a reference type, or do you not? And, and make that more explicit. So, so that's, that's like the elevator pitch for nullable reference types. I think it's actually a really um, exciting. Um, when I first heard about it, it was just going over the years of programming. Like nullable exceptions have kind of just been a pain in the ass all the time, and it's, it would actually be quite interesting for me to actually run to turn this on in some of my projects, just because I do check for null so often that I'm, I, I do wonder whether I will get a ton of warnings or not. But um, one of the things that I really like about C Sharp is kind of this emphasis on trying to find design time errors um, instead of runtime errors, and it's kind of for me, it's really like the that last really big um, thing that to cover off um, before, um, yeah. So, so I'm really quite excited about it. When I was looking through it, I was I, I was just wondering, like, um, are there kind of any like like loopholes where you where you get an object that might be null if um if you don't actually declare it? Like, I'm thinking if you use like reflection or if you use dependency injection or something like that, um, yeah. can you still actually get it? Or yeah. So a couple things uh, to that question. Um, one is if I still have a method let's take the constructor example where I, I, I'm taking a reference to, or I'm getting, my parameter is a reference type. Mm. Okay. And I don't put the question mark on it. That's, that's stating that my intent is I should not be getting a null. Okay. And nobody should be giving a null, but this is not enforced by the runtime. So if somebody passed me in a null, it's still going to come in. So you still have to be defensive. You still have to check it for null, throw an argument, null exception. If somebody gives it to you, things like that. There's actually a proposal that was made by somebody in the Microsoft team. And this is also what's cool about open source and everything is they can see all, if you really want to dig into the language and its evolution and where it may be going, just go to their GitHub site and you will be just swamped. And it's in a good way. That's, it's a really cool to, to see kind of all these things flying by and, and ideas flying by. But one of them was is to actually put the exclamation point on the parameter type. And then that would actually generate the, if it's null, throw an error, but null exception code for you. So it would kind of enforce it for you. But right now that does not happen. So even though you're stating, 
I don't take nulls, it can still be given to you because this is just like a compiler time feature. It's not a runtime feature. So you still have to be defensive. So, so yeah, there, there are places that it can still come in. And, and they've also said with the feature that it is somewhat conservative. They could have gone farther with it, but then they may have ran into cases where you get false positive. So an example of this is if you declare like a string array and the array had 10 elements in it. Well, by default, when you create a, an array of reference types, all of them are null. So if you try to index the, like the third, or actually the fourth value, but if you did like array three in, in there and you tried to do a property on it, it would give you a null reference exception. And C-sharp 8 is not going to check that for you. So you're not going to get any warnings in your code for that. So it's, it won't always catch the things that, that could possibly happen, but it will catch a significant amount of them. You know, you, you actually, Caleb just posted a link to an article that I wrote earlier this year as I took one of my open source libraries and was updating it for C-sharp 8 and keeping up with all the preview versions. And it was... Um, as we say in Minnesota, quite interesting. And by interesting, a pain in the butt. It was hard, well, because part of the reason was is that the feature was evolving. And so every time there was a new version, there was something else popping up that I didn't anticipate. And so I had to go fix my code. At this point, it's, you know, it's all stable, but it was a great learning experience. And there's definitely cases that the compiler may not catch that you still have to be defensive around yourself. So when I first turned it on, yeah, I almost wanted to run away <laughs> in a sizable project that I turned it on. But I was I was curious, you know, what was it going to be like and where were the places that it was most likely going to flag that uh, I could run into issues. And my first thing that I started thinking about was with strings and all the strings that I had in there that it flagged. Am I more likely to say, yeah, those can all be null or should I be setting them all to string.empty? Or you know, what's, what's my best approach to handling all the strings for, for that case? Because yeah. I wasn't sure. When you, think about, when you think about how you're saving that to the database, right? you want nulls in certain places in the database to denote that you know, nothing exists, right? And so how you handle that is going to be interesting going forward. I think we're going to attempt this with a new project we're working on. And and right, but it's it's kind of a it's a different way of looking at it. So we'll mm-hmm. we'll see how far we get. There's one other thing with the feature that I want to mention before we move on from it is when you when you put the question mark on the type, we've been able to do this before with value types. So you've right. been able to say int question mark and say I have a nullable value type. Right. That actually underneath the scenes derives from nullable of t. So there's actually a base type that defines that. That's not the case with this. So when you say string question mark, that's just an annotation. It's not a statement of I have a a type of string question mark, if that makes sense. Now, for most people, that doesn't matter because you're just writing C-sharp code and you want to annotate your code and say it's null or not, and that's fine. That's, That's awesome. But if you do anything with reflection, you're in for a fun time. So <laughs> the, the library that I did this with, that I did on my updates with, was a library called Rocks. And it's, it's a mocking library, kind of like Substitute, MOQ, those types of things. The only difference is that I actually use the compiler API to generate the mocks. So 
The interesting thing that I ran into is if I was trying to target code that had nullable annotations on it, trying to figure out whether that type is actually nullable or not is not as simple as just looking at the parameter. They actually put in, because I keep saying this word annotate, they actually put in attributes into your code with this kind of weird byte erase uh, format, and you have to parse that, but it could also be on your parent type, and, and there's like a nullable attribute, a nullable context attribute. I mean, it, it gets, the, the longest sort of it is, it can get really squirrely. So if you are doing something where you're like, I want to reflect upon or introspect code that already exists, and I need to know if it's nullable or not, right now, and this may change in the future, but as of the, at least the last time I checked, there is no simple, hey, I've got a parameter info like I would from reflection. There is no is nullable property on that to tell you, oh, this parameter is nullable. You have to dig through all this stuff yourself and it's not fun. <laughs> so just, just wanted to throw that out there. That is something that we would run into because we do have uh, some, some pieces of this project we just wrapped up where we're using reflection we're basically passing in a base object that can have multiple properties hanging off of it. And we're using reflection to help determine which extended type it is and which properties have changed so that we have one pipeline for all of these similar but slightly different objects. And uh, yeah, I can see how that, that would be an issue there because like you said, we're looking for the, if it, if the property exists and if it does exist, is it null? And, yeah. And uh, with this, it's, it's, it's no longer um, cut and dry. Okay. So we can take a look at my code, even if you're not doing anything with mocking, because there are, yeah. there's, if you dig in, there's a class in there where I actually figured out like a, a simple way to, to do all that digging for you. And again, I hope that the reflection API is actually updated to, to make that support much easier. I'll add a reference to rocks um, on GitHub in the show notes so people can go okay. take a look at it. So with this feature, again, I think it's probably the one that's gotten the most press for C-Sharp 8, and for good reason. This is something that they have been researching and thinking about for years. There's been a lot of work done with this, and they actually learned a lot from TypeScript because they added that feature into TypeScript before, so they learned from it. And and I think where they landed was, I think, the most reasonable place they could land. I was going to say, is this like a halfway step to get people more used to um, this whole nullable reference type thing, and then they'll make it like maybe even mandatory in the future? Or they're definitely not done, and, and they'll they'll state that that there's there's a lot more work that can happen. In fact, they started realizing as they were annotating all the like the the core BCL types, which you'll start to see now, especially in the reflection API. Like if you want to get a method info, when you say get method, it's now annotated as method info question mark. That's now like in a lot of places, but they're not done. They said they, they won't be done until done at five. And all these annotations also sort of getting them to realize there's these other attributes that they needed to add to basically say maybe null when, and there's an article from Microsoft. I forget what it is off the top of my head, but they, I think it's from Philip. He's the guy that's basically the F sharp guy. And he wrote an article that talks about all these different attributes that you can state the return value will be null if this is not null or something like that. But just that nullable reference type work spawned this kind of work. And I'm sure it's going to spawn also related work as time goes on. So yeah, this isn't done. This is probably going to be evolved 
for you know, at least, I'd say, the next two or three versions and added on to, just like pattern matching. Pattern matching was added in C-sharp 7, and it's been you know, amplified in C-sharp 8 and probably will get even more stuff in future versions. So the one piece of advice I give to people with um, nullable reference types with C-sharp 8 is if you have new work, I would turn it on by default and just start getting used to it because the, the number of things that you'll catch will be you know, small. It's not going to be a, a lot of stuff as you write code. But if you have a large project, I would still encourage people to do it, but with the understanding that if you turn it on, um, it, it might be painful to try to get through all that stuff. So it, it, will, it will take time, and this is where you may want to do it like on a per-file basis rather than just turning it on for the whole project because th- that might be overwhelming. So, so after noble reference types, then you think uh, people should take a look at uh, default interfaces? Is that what they should pick up? Um, at least to be familiar with it. I'm not sure at this point, you know, like, like noble reference types, I think any, any C-sharp developer is going to use. Default interface members, maybe some people will abuse it. <laughs> I'm sure it's going <laughs> sure to be abused. It's really... We were actually... Uh, discussing this in a previous podcast and and it looks odd right it yes. doesn't doesn't look normal and most people right what's the difference between an an interface and an abstract class right and there's some gray area there is the intent of this feature um, in case people again don't know what this is um, yeah, default yeah. interface members is a way for you to define an interface where some of the members may actually have implementations. And so it's not just methods. Sometimes this was called default interface methods. It's members. So most examples that you'll see, though, are with methods. So the reason why this feature was there, and they've actually, the C-sharp folks have stated that they stole this from Java, which is fine. Languages steal stuff from each other all the time. You know, that's, that's just the way things go. They took this idea because versioning with interfaces can suck. So if you have like version one of an interface that has one method on it, and then people start having classes that derive or or implement that interface, you know, everything's fine. You move to the second version where you add another method, you can potentially break the world because people are not implementing that new method off of the interface and bad things can break. So the reason they added this is because you could add an implementation to a new method or a member on an interface and not break the world. That's, I think, really the intent for default interface members is to make versioning of interfaces easier. Because okay. as a side note, what's interesting about this, this feature as well is it's not just like, oh, I, I'm declaring a new method and I wanted to have this little implementation on it so I don't break the world. You can actually now define static members on interfaces as well. So, you know, when I was reading the docs on what this feature is and I saw that, you know, I kind of did like a double take. I was like, wait a minute, really? You can do this? And I tried it. I'm like, yeah, it works. You can actually have non-public members now too on an interface. So this feature is not just like default implementations. There's more to it than just that. So, yeah, like you said, it starts the, the traditional interfaces should just be a contract. It shouldn't have any implementation. That's all it should be. Is, is starting to get a little grayer. When I've done this talk or I've mentioned this to people, some people are like, oh, this is really cool. This is really interesting. And some people, you know, have a more adverse reaction to it than, <laughs> than that. So, 
So at this well, point, the difference I... between an interface and, and, an, and an abstract class, and like if you can actually put members inside the interface. One of the biggest ones is an abstract class can have constructors, and an abstract class can have state, whereas an interface, you still can't have state defined on an interface. I mean, you get properties, but you cannot define the fields. So an abstract class, you can. So there are still some differences between the two. I wouldn't be surprised if two years from now, it's the new normal. Sean and I have discussed this, like when it comes to link or dynamics or Lambda expressions. When they first came out, they were new to everybody. And it was like, "Mm." and I still know some people that are like, that doesn't look right. But if it makes your job easier and it's useful and used in the right way, I can see, you know, getting uh, getting adopted. I had the same feeling when I first saw local functions in C-sharp 7. I, I first saw that and I went, I mean, I, I get it. I get it, like right. what it actually does, but I don't see where this would be useful or where I could actually see it um, being used. And Last night, I, I do some live coding streaming myself, and mm-hmm. I was working on a project on something last night, and I realized I have a function where in two places I need to use the same implementation, but that implementation is local to this function. And I was like, brilliant, I can just put this go. into a local function <laughs> and use it in both those spots, and that's exactly why that, that, that feature is now useful because that solved the, the exact thing I was trying to do, which, which I could have made it because local functions are technically just private functions in your type. That's how it gets compiled in. They yeah. just do some special sauce to make sure that nothing else can call it. Only that function can call it. That's what I would have done before, but it just reads easier because you can see that mm-hmm. this is an implementation within this function that should only be used within this function. And it solved that problem, I thought, in a very elegant way. So I think the same thing is going to happen with default interface members. It's going to take some time. I've seen somebody, his name is Jeremy Bites. He's written a lot of articles already on default interface members and you know where people are going to trip up on it and some potential problems that people could run into it. And I think it's just going to take some time for people to get used to what this is and really where where are the good patterns in terms of when you should use it, when you shouldn't. Yeah, so you can kind of think of it as uh, another version of, you know, protected, private, public. This one is just local, a mental model, not a real technical issue of it. But along those lines, it's like the fifth type. Uh, Maybe. It's interesting you bring that up, though, because you can also make protected members on interfaces now, too. (laughs) (laughs) Fun world. It, it, it needs to find its place. I think that's the one thing is there's, I think, a little bit more uncertainty as to when is the right time to use this and when is the right time not to abuse it. I think that's just the concern people have with it right now. Back when we were starting up new shows, one of the shows that got started was Views on View. And one of the things that was really fun about that is that I got to know a bunch of really terrific people in the View community. And furthermore, one thing that happened that really hadn't happened on any of the other shows, we actually got a member of the core team to come on as a regular panelist on the show. We have Chris Fritz on there. The other thing is, is you may recognize some of the other voices. Ben Hong, who's on the official View News podcast, is also a panelist on the show. He's worked for Politico and now works for GitLab. We also have a bunch of other terrific panelists that come on and talk to you about what's going on in the View community. And because they're so closely tied to View and they talk to people about View all the time, 
they're very up to date and very knowledgeable about what's going on in the Vue community. So if you're looking for a way to learn Vue.js, or if you're looking for a way to stay current with Vue.js and kind of have the water cooler conversations you wish you could have about it in places where maybe they're not using it, then definitely check it out. You can find it at viewsonview.com. You know, something else that we talked about uh, on the podcast and, um, and Jason, uh, you've talked about, and it has to do with, with C-Sharp and .NET and kind of the direction Microsoft has taken the company the last few years is, is like you said, uh, C-Sharp is now open source, right? Mm-hmm. And .NET Core and Blazor, right? All these things that they're doing out in the open and actually getting input from the community and in a number of cases, right, uh, updates, additions, bug fixes. It's amazing to see the difference between now and, what, five years ago. Yes. Uh, it is a huge difference. And in so many ways, um, you know, there's been this slow but sure move within Microsoft. And you saw little bits of it. Um, I've got a timeline on one slide I do as a talk where, you know, Wix was like, the, that was the first .NET project from Microsoft that was open source on SourceForge. Yeah. But that was the first one. And then they did Codeplex and ASP.NET MVC was actually open source. So it was like, you know, one after the other, the other, but it was never this default mantra that that's what they did. Whereas when you see Rosalyn, which had been around, you know, in the cooker for a long time, that when at build 2014, when they actually, you know, Anders hit the button to say, let's make this open source, I was floored. Mm-hmm. I mean, I knew this yeah. was coming. I did not know that they were actually going to make it open source. And I think, you know, from that point on, because that opened, that basically made your compiler open source, your language is open source. And right behind it, you start seeing the runtimes become open source. So I think that movement just sort of becoming exponentially larger and, yeah, it's it's a very very different world that now you, you know you got .NET Core that runs on Linux and Mac and and other places. You know, it's I've been at conferences uh, where people have come up to me and said I had no idea that you could actually run C Sharp on Linux. And I'm like, yeah, we actually at Imagenic we have a lot of clients that that's what they're targeting. You know, everybody writes their stuff in C Sharp, mm-hmm. and they may be using a Mac, they may be using you know Windows laptop or whatever. But when it gets deployed, it's shipped out to a Linux box or really they don't care because maybe it's, it's done in Kubernetes and you know, we that's, really don't actually know what, what that's going to um, so. That's what we're going to be doing with this new project. We're doing all of it in Azure or we're going to be hosting yeah. it. And everything's going to be Linux because it's cheaper, right? Yeah. And, and the C Sharp doesn't yeah. care where it's at at this yeah. point. Yeah, it's, it's a uh, much different world. Much different right. world. I've actually read... I forget their article, and, uh, and if I can find them, I'll put it in the show notes. But it's kind of the trajectory of uh, Satya Nadella, right? His He started out integrating uh, some agile development methodologies into the group he was managing, right? And then, like, as you said, right, you know, you plant a few seeds and things start to grow, you know. And when he became uh, CEO, they were like, okay, this is the path forward. We may not be there today, but we're going to get there. And it's made a world of difference. Yeah. I, sometimes I think people forget, like when I talk about the history of .NET, that it really started because there was this company called Sun that sued Microsoft. And people are like, what is Sun? You know, <laughs> if, if you haven't been around as, as long as I have, and, and I have to start realizing I'm, I'm getting old, that 
there are people that don't even know that into the late 90s that there was this whole kerfuffle with Visual J++ and Microsoft extending it. That ended up starting this idea of you know, Microsoft owning their own runtime. I mean, I, I'm, I'm taking a huge story and making it really small there, but yeah. you know, there's been this large history of things at Microsoft and, and what's been going on that people don't realize. Mm-hmm. With Microsoft as well, when you talk about Satya, that I think sometimes people forget, and me as a .NET, which was pretty much equatable as being a Windows developer, that's actually starting to not be an equality at this, like you just said, you can write C-sharp and target Linux. Um, But for a long time, those two pretty much were hand in hand. And when Windows 8 and all that stuff started coming out, I had already started wondering, where in the world is Microsoft and .NET going? And that, that actually really scared me. (laughs) <laughs> I didn't think that that was the, the greatest strategy in the world. And it was very refreshing to see Sacha get into the position that he's in. And I think, you know, it's it's not just him, but I right. think right. his mentality started to really resonate with a lot of other people. And I, you know, I think mm-hmm. it just started to, you know, it turned the Titanic, so to speak, and got him in a much better direction. If we want to go a little bit back into C-Sharp 8, because there's a lot of mm-hmm. other things that are coming in the line. Some of the things that I really liked about it were some of the, the, the better pattern matching with it. The new switch statement looks real interesting with you know property matching. Yes, it does. I have to admit, it's one of these features that I'm still like trying to beat into my head because it's, <laughs> it, it's still kind of different. Um, and I'm trying to figure out exactly... Well, how it works and when it works in the right way, in the right condition, and not necessarily trying to, like last night, I, I tried to use it for something that I was working on, and I think I was forcing the square peg into a round hole. It just was not working. I was sitting there thinking, am I not using this right? Because it's a new feature, and I don't quite understand all the cases that it could be used. I'll say this about recursive patterns and pattern matching in C-sharp. I'm glad that they're doing it. I really am. I think that it makes some cases when you're writing code, especially when it pops up in a refactoring in Visual Studio, which sometimes, especially if you had like an if statement or a switch statement, it will sometimes offer to make it into like a a pattern match statement. And then it looks Mm -hmm. a lot more elegant when it does that. The thing that I think C-sharp really needs, and it's something that's proposed as a a future thing, is to greatly enhance the type system. So if you look at languages like F-sharp, TypeScript, uh, Pony, that's a really cool language. People want to dig into a language. That's a cool one. They have this, you know, like TypeScript has what they call structural typing, but their type system is much more powerful than C-sharps is. And even as a C-sharp lover, I will say that when you see the language, you start realizing that the type system in C-sharp is a little anemic at times. For pattern matching to work, I think at the next level is when you see things like match, which is an F-sharp and Pony and Rust and other languages, where you can basically say, this type is either this or this or this. Mm. But you know that it could only be one of those three. Right now, the only way to do that in C-sharp is you either have to give some really generic base type and know what could possibly be deriving from it, and that starts feeling a little ugly, or you're just going to say this thing could be an object, and then it could be either this type or this type, and that's even worse. So, so again, I'm not trying to say recursive patterns is a bad thing. It's, it's mm-hmm. a good feature, but 
I'm hoping that the type system in C Sharp at some point in the future can be made richer because then I think you could do even some more expressive things in the language. And, and that might be really difficult to do from some of the proposals I've seen, you know, trying to, to do that kind of work and somehow keep backwards compatibility. That, that's a problem. Well, it would be fun to be on, but wow. <laughs> yeah. I think that's something that they, they currently kind of have a version of that in TypeScript with the union types and things like that. Yep. Where you can say something is, you know, this type or this type or this type. So, yeah, it's another crossover. Now, when I was uh, watching the .NET Conf uh, videos, they had a couple sessions on on these features. And I thought they had a really good one about the pattern matching with the switch and the properties and values and the new indicator of what default is, you know, with the underscore mm-hmm. instead of the word default for your switch mm-hmm. statements. So. I put that into the notes. So if anybody want to look, look into that a little bit more in depth, go ahead and uh, watch those videos on the .NET Conf. So the what's new page you have from the docs there, mm-hmm. I think that shows an example of pattern matching where they use um, tuples for pattern matching. And that right, example yeah. is really cool. That, that, one, I have to admit, that, that one looks really cool. So, so yeah, again, it's, it's a very powerful feature. Um, so don't take my criticism as it's bad. It's not. It's it's just, you know, there's just parts of it that I go, man, if they had union types and stuff like that, oh, that, that would like just make it even that much better. But it, it can lead to some pretty elegant code. That's what I like about recursive patterns. So, yeah. so if we want to pick off another uh, feature that's in there, one is asynchronous streams. That one I think is pretty cool. What asynchronous streams are, is typically in .NET or in C Sharp, if you've done a for each, you know, you're, you're, you're going to for each over some type of collection like a list. And you always have all the elements in that list. And so you're just for eaching over all of them. So that's pretty straightforward. But that's a synchronous endeavor. And that means that you had all that data in memory at one time. For a lot of cases, it's fine. But for a lot of other cases, it's not. You can flip it and go almost the other way, where if you think of the example like a stock ticker, that's a source of data that just keeps coming over time, and it's and you don't know when the next value is going to show up. Reactive extensions, a framework that does not get enough press in .NET, which should, is an awesome framework to handle cases like that, where your stream of data is actually completely coming the other way, and you don't know when it's going to end. That's one that people should just look like at. Just like an there. observable? You know, people that are working in JavaScript and TypeScript, is it like an available? Well, Reactive Extensions is something that started at Microsoft. And then it was, you know, versions of it were done for other languages. And it's funny because RxJS is like one of the most popular JavaScript frameworks out there. And yeah, the concept of observable came from Reactive Extensions. Well, or at least that, I don't want to say Reactive Extensions came up with the idea, but they're the ones that really pushed it. And now you see it in these other frameworks. Now, asynchronous streams to me, this is an analogy that will fall apart in some ways, but it's kind of like in the middle. So I want to do a for each on a data set that I know is probably going to end at some time, but I don't have all the data all the time. Mm -hmm. So if I'm actually getting a stream of data from a service somewhere, and I know at some point I'm going to finish it, but I don't know that I'm going to get all of it at one time, nor would I really want to, because if it's a large data set, then I have to pull all of that once. And, you know, from a memory standpoint, that could be 
not advantageous. So with an asynchronous stream, what essentially happens now is that you basically say a wait for each, assuming that the thing that you are doing a for each on is an asynchronous enumerable. Mm -hmm. So if you look at the coding examples, they're very similar to what you do now, except that you can actually produce your values in an asynchronous way. That to me is actually a, a really powerful feature that they've added in I don't think it's gotten as much uh, light as other ones have, but I think in part because APIs have to opt into this so that you can actually then consume them using a wait for each in your code. But a lot of things you can think of, network APIs, file IO APIs, if you're calling a a service somewhere, those types of APIs, all of those, if they can start supporting asynchronous enumeration, man, you're going to start using this all. And that's what async await is. Once you start using it, it it comes infectious into your code. And you do want to start using it all over the place. So this is just another area of it. And one small consequence that's also interesting from asynchronous enumerables is they had had to add in a way for you to do asynchronous disposables. So there's now an iAsync disposable interface and you can actually do an await using in your code. If something implements iAsync disposable and now you can actually, your dispose method will be done asynchronously. So, okay. so that, that's another cool feature that if you have. Um, if you have this um, async on, on the for each, would it run things in an unpredictable order? Like, it, does, it, does it run each loop of the for each as soon as it comes? Or Yeah, so as soon as you get a value with the async for, uh, when you do a wait for each, as soon as the value comes in, then it, go, it goes in and that's the value that you have and then you do whatever you would normally do within your for each. Yeah. And then basically when, you, when you're going to come out and say, for each the next one, whatever that next one is, that's the one it's going to work on. So it's as random as the stream source would be. If the stream, if the source of the data is like going to give you the first piece of data, and then it might have to take a tenth of a second to come up with the next one, well, that first one's the one you're going to work on. And then the cool thing about all this, though, is that it ties in very nicely into the await async machinery that is already in C Sharp. So if you're doing this, for example, on a, on a like in server side, you're not consuming or creating more threads. You're just suspending your threads. And so just like what it does right now. And so you no longer have as many blocking threads as you would if you were trying to do asynchronous streaming some other way. So we had to actually synchronously wait for the next value. That to me is the, again, well, another big advantage to this feature and how it ties in with what already exists in C Sharp. I mean, I can see how it's going to be really useful. Again, people are just going to have to approach it a different way. For instance, Sean and I uh, were talking about link in our recent podcast, right? And the difference of calling to list on it or, you know, when you call to list, what you're bringing to memory, if you're using iQueryable, like you said, this is going to allow you to, to not have to pull in you know, thousands of rows from a database necessarily and then iterate over them to find the ones you need, you'll be able to do it really, like you said, more of more of the, the observable way, which if you haven't worked with RxJS and observables, even if you have, it's, it's a bit of a mind meld the first time mm-hmm. you get into Angular. But it's definitely a performance improvement, you know, throughput improvement, and it opens up a lot of possibilities for how you yes. handle the data you're, you're managing. 
Right. Again, I think it's just a, this is one that's going to take time for APIs to start supporting it. That's right. really the only hindrance to this is that it needs implementations of it in people's code. But once that starts showing up, then I think you're going to almost start to see a wait for each. I don't want to say that it becomes the standard way to do it because there's times where you just have an array or you have a list of memory and you just want to for each over it and that's perfectly fine. Right. But with things that you, like I mentioned before, like files or networking or stuff like that, yeah, you definitely want to have some type of streaming API and that's what that gives you. So it's more appropriate for things that are going to be larger inside or maybe some latency involved with reading. Yes. Exactly. Th- those two points, I think you pretty much hit it, at least in my opinion. I think those are the two things you definitely want to want to think about. Let's talk about enhanced usings. Okay. Because yeah. this one, people, it's simple, but I- I've seen people like, go, oh, that's really cool. And then people go, I will never, ever want to use this in my life because it looks horrible. It is a simple thing. This is not a big feature. It just looks really weird at first glance because I think we've been conditioned to see something that's disposable and how it's being done in a using statement the same way for God knows how many years, you know, since day, like, version one. So if you've tried to use anything as a disposable, you've always said, like, using bar customer equals new customer or whatever, and then you have a block, and then you have code in there, and then when the, the code is finished within the block, there's a try finally that's actually emitted, and your disposable method is called. Okay, yay, we all know this. This enhanced using feature basically says that, oh, and there's another thing with enhanced using I want to cover too, and we'll get to that in a moment. But the, the big one that people see right away is now I can actually say like using var customer equals new customer semicolon, and you don't need braces. So what this is actually doing is saying everything from that line of code on until you hit like an outer scope, if you want to think of it that way, of a block, all of that is actually within the block that you used to have. You just don't have to have that block there anymore. So I have to admit, the first time I saw this, I went, no. Same thing I did. I says, why? How is this better? It saves me, yeah. a, couple, saves me a couple parentheses or something like that. And that was it. Part of me just goes, am I being a curmudgeon and I just am not, you know, I'm not seeing it? Or is this truly going to make code harder to read? I'm, not, I'm still mm-hmm. not sure. I've been forcing myself to use it more and more. And, and I have to admit, I don't know if I'm Stockholming myself or not, but I, I'm getting used to seeing it that way. But it's, it's definitely an odd one. And, and, I, and I'm a developer that if I have a one-liner for an if statement, I still put it in a block. I always put those things in a block because I find it easier to read and easier to reason about. And so to not do that with this kind of, with using is actually, again, it's just, it's a small thing, but it, it reads weird to me because I've seen it the same way for so long. We right. all have, there was no choice. You had to do it right. that way. I wonder if, don't. right, if they're, they added this, this enhancement or offer this so that you don't have to worry about what's necessarily managed inside the using, right? Or for people who, who maybe knew the language, right? And, and they're not sure what constitutes something that needs to be managed inside of the braces versus outside the braces. So you just, you let, you let the, the compiler manage that. Possibly. I mean, that, that yeah. may be one case for it. It's not going to go away completely because if you have a method where what's in the using definitely has a scope, then you have to still have the scope there. You can't okay. not have gotcha. it. So there will still be cases where we won't be able to use this 
mm-hmm. unless you restructure your code in an odd way just to force it, which I don't think is a good thing to do. Is it just a syntax change or is there a difference in the IL that comes out? Same IL, same stuff. So it's it's purely a syntactic thing. There's nothing, if you have a using, like with the new enhanced using, and then five lines of code underneath it, and you would actually then, or if, compare that to putting, to writing the code that we used to do with the braces, same result. There's going to be no difference. Was this inspired by like like another language or something? Like I'm just trying to think of what what, what motivated them to do this. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm not sure. I, I it's a great question because I, I don't know what the motivation was. Be, there's got to be one. I mean, they, they yeah. just don't put in features for. Oh, this is cool. One of the things I've heard: if people propose features to C Sharp and they're absolutely convinced that it is like the greatest thing since sliced bread, to propose a feature to C Sharp, you have to assume that you're already in the negative. And you have to win them over to make it even mm. seem like it's remotely feasible because it's it's got to be a feature that is going to be worth the team to support from that point on. And that's not a trivial endeavor. So, gotcha. so yeah, they didn't just put this in because they thought it looked cool. There's got to be motivation around it. But that is a good question because I'm not sure in this case what the motivation is because it just does feel like, oh, this is cool. <laughs> so I got to take a look at that in my own time. I wonder if there's actually like, like a really solid reason as to why they added it. I just wonder what that is offhand. The other thing with the enhanced usings that's, this one I think is actually kind of cool is right now this is just limited to what they call ref structs. So you can actually define a struct as a ref, um, as a reference structure. That, that's a kind of a lower level implementation detail that was actually in C Sharp. I think they added it in 7.2, but the ability to do ref structs was done before. The, the thing, though, with a rough truck is that it cannot implement an interface. There are cases where you want to have a rough struct implement on disposable, and you can't do that. It just doesn't allow you to do that. So they've now made an exception where if a rough struct has a method that's public void dispose, you can actually use it in a using statement, and it works. So this is similar to a deconstruct. So if you've ever done tuple deconstruction, where you have a method that's a public void deconstruct, and then all of your parameters are out parameters, you can then assign the object that has that method in it and just assign it to a tuple, and you don't call deconstruct. It just automatically calls destruct for you and puts it into a tuple. So there's some of these cases that are showing up now in C Sharp where it's like, if you do this pattern in your code the right way, will actually do something for you, like deconstruct, like dispose on reststruct types. This is something that I wish they would generalize and make it something that's available for every developer. Gotcha. You know, I, I wrote a book once on meta programming because I think it's such a cool idea. And the ability to like generate code that is based on code that it sees and can extend your code in so many different ways. Like people think of aspect oriented programming as one of these ideas. But this is kind of like that, where if I have a pattern in my code, then I want it to actually do these other things. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure lots of you know, people can think of lots of cases where if instead of me having to write all this code, if I just like put an attribute in my code and it did all this for me, I notify property change is a, is a classic example of this. Then I don't have to write them myself. My users don't have to write themselves. It's just generated in the code and it's all handled. So so I bring up that feature because even though it's a small one, it's again another case where it's like, I, I hope at some point in the future, 
an idea like this is generalized because for C-sharp to have some kind of metaprogramming gener- source generation type of idea, you know, or implementation, oh, I, I would go nuts with it. <laughs> it would be so much fun. So, but that's not in C-sharp 8, not, not yet. So <laughs> time will tell, right? When, when you mentioned so. the, the deconstruct automatically going to a tuple, it makes me think of the uh, spread in TypeScript, which I haven't had the need to use a lot. Is that the, when I have is used that the dot, dot, dot thing? Yep. Yeah. It's like, oh, okay. I, that worked out really well in that situation. That, you know, that, that fits. Uh, that, that was a good use case. Mm-hmm. Um, again, it's, it's training yourself to use these features instead of falling back to comfortable methods and ways of, of handling things. Hopefully we'll see more of that when you're talking about, right, things that, that don't require us to write all that extra code and make our life easier. I think of the difference between ADO.net and ADD framework, right? N- night and day, ADO.net used to have to write, God knows, plumbing, right, to get the simplest mm-hmm. stuff. And that's really not the case anymore. So yeah. I'd say one of the because like if you see I keep looking like over here, it's because my other shins yeah. over here again. I got the list of all the features up there. I'd say one of the other the last features that's like one of the biggest features. There's there's a yeah. couple of smaller ones that are in there, but one of the the last big features I think is in C sharp eight is ranges and indexes or indices, and that's where you can basically say like if I have an array, I can say I want to get the first, second, and third parts of the array. Okay, which would be zero, one, and two, or if I want to do a substring on a string, there's all these cases where I have like a collection of something and I want to take a part of it. This basically makes that kind of operation much easier to write. So you could say, for the first case I, I gave, you can get you can take an array and do zero dot dot zero one two three because the three is exclusive. Mm-hmm. So what's given to you is a copy of the that part of the array. Okay. So that's essentially what ranges do. Um, and again, it's an explicit type. You can actually say new range in C-sharp 8, and you'll see the constructor and everything pop up, so you can actually use a range type if you want. There's also an index. So if you said, I want to get the last value in my array, you would say hat. That's the caret symbol. That's mm-hmm. like what's a, a six on your keyboard. <laughs> that's the, the hat. So if you say hat one, that basically gives you the last value in the array. So I, I've never done Python programming, but I've been told that this is somewhat similar, similar, not entirely, but somewhat similar to what I guess is in Python already. So maybe that's where they stole this idea from. But again, it's, it's a more succinct way to basically say, I have a collection of something. I want to get a part of it. And instead of me having to, to go through potentially some gyrations to do it, I can just do this very succinct syntax to do it. The one thing with arrays, though, to keep in mind is when I said you get a copy of, the, of that part of the array, that's exactly what you get as a copy. If you want to get a reference to those values, you can actually say dot as span and then do the range. And so what that's giving you is a span type across that array. And so you're, you're literally getting the direct reference to that part of the array. So if you change the span, you're actually tar- you're changing the target array. The nice thing about that is that you essentially have no allocation when you do that. Spans are awesome types. You know, it's not something that people use a lot of, but it's this one type that if you're doing kind of lower level-ish and you're programming where you really want to be cautious about how much memory you're using, span is an awesome type to use. So 
But yeah, so ranges and indices, I think, is one of the, the features that I think a fair amount of C-sharp developers will start using. Yeah, I think there was some controversy with why they started, even you know, starting from the end, to, you know, the hat one instead of hat yeah. zero. And they actually explained that there's actually an invisible element at the end, which is what hat zero actually would <laughs> be pointing to. That's not an element that you normally get to when you're going just iterating through an array from zero to the end. I heard some discussion too about why hat zero doesn't make sense because people are like, well, that, I want the last element. So why isn't that zero? The first element in array is, is index zero. So why don't they make that hat zero? And I have to admit, I forget the argument on why you don't do it that way. It has to be hat one, but there is a reason why, why that does exist that way. So the, the index... Is it right? because you're pulling in the last element instead of saying you want you know, the last by the other one, like it's, I feel like that, that might be the reason, like, um, cause you can, you can do hat two, right. And just pull in the last two elements. Um, hat two gets you the second. Oh, okay. Part. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. Interesting. It's a syntax, at least for me, that's still a little hard to get my head around. The range one makes a lot more sense to me. And while this isn't supported just yet, I, I think it's already been proposed to have a syntax to say like, for each var i in zero dot dot 100 or something like that, where you can basically say, I want a range of integers from zero to 99 and you know write a statement like that. Um, again, that's not in C-sharp 8, but I think that's already been proposed to start using that kind of syntax in more places in C-sharp, hopefully in the future. So, But the index one is is a little hard to get my my brain around still <laughs> it just looks kind of odd for some reason so yeah so is there uh, some other things left over that you want to go over or? um not really i mean there are some smaller things in c sharp a like static local functions is a nice one um you know the, there's there's another one in here i'm not seeing it off the top of my head but like like the the no, oh yeah, null coalescing assignments, but th- those are smallerish features. Um, I think mm-hmm. the ones that we've been talking about are probably going to be the ones that impact the vast majority of C sharp developers. And again, it's all of that stuff. And really, since C sharp, if, if people, you know, as developers, I get it. Sometimes people get stuck on a project in a particular language version, and you don't necessarily get the ability to move ahead on it on a day to day basis, but. C-sharp since 6.0 has really taken off in terms of just the, the number of changes that have been happening. So if you look at code that's like written in pure, quote-unquote, C-sharp 8, and compare it to what you'd see even in like the C-sharp 2, it's very, very different at times. I, th- I think it's a good thing because in a lot of ways it's become more elegant to read, more succinct, um, and in, in some ways, you know, just easier to parse in your head. So... So when you're at conferences and you're talking about this, what do you usually title the conference if people want to come in and, and see you? Well, this talk is, I usually call what's new in C-sharp and then whatever the current version is. So I've been, okay. um, I've, I've been doing a C-sharp talk now since like uh, C-sharp 6. And so it's been 6, 7, 8. And I mean, there's other talks that I do at conferences, but related to C-sharp, that's, the one, that's what I usually title it. Well, okay. then that'll be the name of the podcast. <laughs> This episode. (laughs) (laughs) We'll go with that. We've been recording Ruby Rogue since 2011. And we've talked to a lot of people who have had a really deep influence, not only on the programming community, but also on the Ruby community. And as we've talked to these people, it's become apparent to me that 
We talk a lot about the things that make them interesting that they've done. We don't really get into how they got into programming or how they came up in their career, how they got to be the person who invented whatever library or or technique that they came on the show to talk about. And so I put together a show where we actually highlight these things. We talk to them about how they got into programming. We talk to them about how they got into Ruby, maybe how they got into Rails. We get a little bit deep into what makes them tick and why they are the way they are. And then we talk about what they're working on. We talk about the things that make them well-known or make them interesting. And a lot of times, it's the stuff that goes beyond the code that really makes these people tick and makes them the kind of people that we want to hear about. And so I put together a show called My Ruby Story. You can find it at myrubystory.com. And it's where I interview these people and just get the stories of these people and how they came into programming. So if you want to hear inspirational stories or get ideas on how you can actually advance your career, then go check it out at myrubystory.com. So let's move on to picks then. Caleb, want to start it? Sure. So I don't get a a ton of time to watch TV with a a now four-year-old, but um, there's a new show, uh, Prodigal Son, on Fox. And I've actually watched the first two episodes, and it's really good. You know, dark drama type deal. So if you haven't seen it and you like that kind of stuff, check it out. Okay. I'll have to look at that. Uh, Why? Yeah. yeah, um, This one's a little random. So um, I came across an audio book that was really... Pretty awesome. So I was just um, it's called Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine mm-hmm. by a by a new author actually called Gail Honeyman. It's actually her first book. I kind of just was just looking for something to listen to on the car the other day, and I didn't even look at the blurb. I just quickly kind of just downloaded it because the cover looked fine. But um, it's basically about this like this woman, and she's like really logical and really kind of emotionless, and kind of just her her confusion as she navigates through kind of like the the, the human aspects of, of life, the, the logical parts of society. And, you know, I don't want to spoil it because I kind of listened to this book without any kind of background, but, you know, it goes into a backstory and stuff like that. And I guess it kind of just reminds me of how some of some developers I know, how they're kind of like, relentlessly logical, you know? So no, I thought it was a really good book. So I'll post a link, I guess, later. Um, okay, good. My pick this week is going to be based on, you know, things that I did when I was Growing up, I spent a lot of time in arcades and, you know, there's kind of a, a new retro thing about old arcade games. So, and it also falls into Blazer. So there's a, a version of Asteroids out there called Blazer Asteroids. And it's yeah. all based on WebAssembly. And so I remember when I was young, I spent one night, I spent 17 hours playing one game of Asteroids and I still had <laughs> lots and lots of games left. And I just walked away, you know, I, you know, I was a long ways from any world records, but you know, it was an all night skate thing. And so I spent 17 hours on one quarter playing asteroids. Nice. So that was my thing. Wow. And so yeah, with Blazer and Retro Arcades, my, my pick is Blazer Asteroids. All right. So Jason, have you thought of something to be your yeah, pick? Yeah. You, you threw me, um, you know, just say it. I have a lot of interest, but I've also been just, you know, family, kids, speaking, all those stuff. I've been kind of busy, but there's when, um, when you mentioned the, the book, they just thought of, because I read a lot. I love reading. That's like the one thing I collect is books. So, and there's one genre that I really, really enjoy, which I'm going to scare everybody with my little alien picture right there. So <laughs> my little, I don't know what they call these, but uh, yeah. So I got that for Christmas for my family because I because I'm a huge alien nut. In fact, behind me, 
I realize that I have, um, this isn't the one I'm re- recommending, but this is the Alien Isolation game, The Art of Alien Isolation. Oh, so, okay. Um, I've got a ton of that stuff here, but the one I was going to mention, I don't have it in front of me, but if you're a true alien nut, it's called The Making of Alien, and it just came out this year. It's you know, like one of those coffee table huge books, but it is utterly exhaustive in terms of the history of making the movie Alien. So if you if you like that movie, you like that world, and if you just like movie making and the process of like getting actors together and how that happened and all that stuff, it is thoroughly detailed on that process. So it's it's been quite a treat to go through that and, and see that history and stuff. And I've, I've known a lot about the movie, but there were things in there that I was like, oh, I had no idea that that happened. So pretty cool. Cool. Very cool. All right, great. Well, thanks for spending the time with us today and going over uh, C-Sharp 8. I sure got a lot about it, out of it, and I hope our listeners did too. So, yeah, thank you. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I enjoyed it. Great. So that's it for this episode. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye, y'all. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.